we create fantastical worlds with help from you, our listener. My name is Rob Hilferty, and I am here with extra special guest Daniel Quinn. <laughs> extra special because this week, or last week, I forgot to mention he was on the podcast. So, Daniel, apologies to you. I'm also here with slightly <laughs> less special guest, Warlord of Wage Slaves, Chris oh, On today's episode, in case you haven't noticed already, we've certainly noticed you, Senpai, because our episode today is all about anime. In a extra special email that we got from friend of the show, Detlef, he asks, Hey guys, after hearing a multitude of anime references that have been dropped, I'd like to ask which anime series have the best world building in your opinions. My personal top picks would be Soul Eater, Attack on Titan, and Hunter Hunter. I also wanted to drop an idea for a one or two shot episode. Can you build an interesting world that has a distinct anime feel to it? Uh, keep spinning, Detlef. So this episode is going to be that first half of that email where we're basically going to approach it with our two favorite, or not even necessarily favorite, but just interesting instances of world building in anime. So Daniel, why don't you go ahead and start us off with your first instance of anime? I think in order, so I'm not a huge um, anime fan. I know very little about anime, um, although I spent a lot of time with an ex who was super into anime, so I've been subjected to a lot of it. Given the fact that I was subjected to a lot of anime against my will, I will say, <laughs> I approach uh, thinking about it from a somewhat academic perspective. In uh, college, I read a book called uh, Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud, which you know, I'm sure a lot of people know about that just kind of takes apart comics from a kind of dissected perspective. Like what is a comic and how does it break down? What I found interesting in understanding comics is he, he talks about the difference between like Western comics and uh, anime and, and manga in particular. And I think the things he talks about in that translate over to how they're constructed, uh, you know, especially as like cartoons or um, movies, sorry, series or movies. So when I was thinking about the one that I that I um, chose to rewatch, um, you know, like my tastes are very mainstream. I was I was I really liked Ghost in the Shell, uh, the original movie. So when I thought about that one, I was thinking, well, what are the ways in which uh, it's constructed, uh, panel to panel? Even though this is a, a film rather than the original manga, one of the things Scott talks about is uh, transitions between gutters. So normally when you have like a Western comic, there's only a few types of transitions that they use. Um, so if you're thinking like a Batman comic or a Superman comic, you know, the, the transitions are usually pretty literal. So it goes from like moment to moment or action to action, meaning you might be like zooming out of the earth. So each panel is like a little bit further away, or maybe someone's like swinging a baseball bat. Um, these examples are right from the Scott McCloud book. Um, but in anime, they tend to favor what's called aspect to aspect transitions. So in, in any anime, you typically see a lot of situations where the camera is kind of moving around arbitrarily and seemingly randomly from one part of the scene to the other to, to establish the mood. And I think um, this is what happens a lot in Ghost in the Shell. So I guess I should give a little bit of background for those who are under a rock and haven't seen it. But uh, Ghost in the Shell is a, kind of a post-cyberpunk anime about a cyborg whose name is Major Kusanagi, and she uh, belongs to this like secret police force called Section 9. So there's a lot of uh, back and forth between her police force called Section 9 and another group inside the government called Section 6. So there's a lot of like geopolitics that go between the two of them. 
but it, but since this is since I was looking at the movie in particular, we only had so much time when you have a movie as opposed to like a series to establish the world. So a lot of stuff has to happen. And I think one of the ways Ghost in the Shell achieves that is by the way it presents um, the world to you, and like specifically, literally the way it presents it to you. It has that aspect to aspect approach to setting up everything from it, when you, when you look at the, the, the way the city that they operate in is the rest of the, the country, you've got this dilapidated cityscape um, where kind of people have this high tech, low life uh, existence. Um, and the way it shows you all of that is by just moving the camera around really slowly to set the mood. Um, there's a lot of shots like that where we learn about how the world exists based on um, just being immersed in it. Um, and and that, that pacing, I think, is achieved specifically through moving the camera slowly and letting you focus on particular scenes. Um, a couple of scenes I could think of, there's that really philosophical scene between the major and her partner on the boat, where not a lot of stuff happens, but the camera moves to tell a story um, between the two of them. And it, it, it tends to focus on things that don't tell you literally what's happening, but tell you emotionally what's happening. Um, the other final scene with the puppet master on the tank is similar to that. And it kind of goes inside their minds to some degree. And even the, even the scenes um, where it's just panoramas and you're moving around the city, um, there's a, a whole bunch of segments that are maybe 10, 15 minutes, not, not 10, maybe a few minutes long, um, which is extraordinarily long, extraordinarily long for, um, you know, any kind of fast paced, action film to just focus on showing you things without having any dialogue. Um, and I think that's part of the technique of, of like anime as opposed to Western stuff. Um, the other really big thing I think Ghost in the Shell does for world building is what a lot of cyberpunk does. And that is show you different technologies um, and that are unique to the setting. So we've got everything from like cyber brains, the prostheses to like, what's called Simex, false memory chips. Um, all those things just populate the world. And rather than explain them to you, you just see them used. Um, and what that does is teach you, okay, this is a world where technology is really integrated and invaded our bodies. Um, and and it, rather than trying to like explain that to you in a way that, uh, I don't know, like uh, tells rather than shows, it just shows you how those things work and how they're connected. So if, so if I had to summarize, I'd say Ghost in the Shell's world building relies on aspect-to-aspect um, -aspect transitions. So showing you the world from a lot of arbitrary perspectives, like a wandering eye for the camera to get the mood across. And then also um, embedded technology, which is really part of the core of Cyberpunk. I'm familiar more with Standalone Complex than I am the movie, mm -hmm. because I, I watched a lot of that back in the day on Adult Swim. And I can say that you, there is a lot of that. And I love a lot of the themes that ghost in the shell explores when it comes to, I mean, it's, it's now it's, I would say it's fairly standard cyberpunk, but for the time it was obviously pretty ahead or, or at least on par with, you know, conveying the themes of cyberpunk a lot of the time. And I just love the way that technology is integrated and, and how it's not just about, um, I think this is kind of interesting, Daniel. You said that it's technology is invasive to the human body, but I would actually argue that that's not really the case. I would argue that there is more of a synthesis between, you know, the physical human body and technology where you blur the line between what is and is not your body at this point. You know, the ability to 
look through the eyes and be a machine is not seen as a, as a problem. It's not seen as like a corruption of the human spirit, but rather it is an extension of the technology and that shift in, in, you know, kind of how you, how people in society look at technology is something that I think is, needs to be talked about when we talk about the world building, because one thing that, you know, you can throw in the tech and you can throw in the, the, the aesthetics and the neon and everything like that. But I think a really cool, subtle way to show world building is to show the culture and society and how they look at technology and how there are, there are differing viewpoints with how people approach the world essentially. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right in that. I think oftentimes in, especially in cyberpunk, the technology really is standing in for something else. Um, and there's, it gets treated from a couple perspectives, at least in the ghost in the shell. Like on the one hand, some of the technology is the consequence of like capitalist encroachment. Like, so there's this really what it is is an invasion of like commercialism into people's lives. Um, the, the conversations between the garbage men. So you just have these two garbage men who are on like their route. Um, but one of them, one of them has been completely replaced. His memory has been completely replaced. And he's basically the, the tool of a larger like conspiracy of the, the puppet master. So you get a little bit of their regular lives, but really like the technology has kind of supplanted them, but it's not really about the technology, right? It's about the, the, the fact that there's this, um, geopolitical apparatus that's capitalist that's in control of the whole society right but to your point though about um that it's also synthesis like that's the whole point that's the whole objective of the movie and that the puppet master wants to merge with um kusanagi to become this other creature that's the way of um it's evolving there's even like i remember in the final scene where the she fights that tank. She passes by this like facade in the wall that shows like the, the evolutionary uh, evolutionary tree of humanity, and at the very top, like there's humankind. So like it, there's, an, there's a hint that okay is is the next step in in human evolution to merge with the machine. So like it's so you're totally right in suggesting that like it's a fraught relationship for sure, like between the two. Mm. I, again, this is just like it, standalone or, or Ghost in the Shell in particular is just such like a masterpiece when it comes to cyberpunk and like that whole era and stuff like that. I, I do, I do really love it. Mm-hmm. And again, I, it it's, it's funny because I, I never really consider myself a sci-fi person, but even I cannot deny how good a lot of sci-fi stuff is. You know, my, my preference is fantasy, but it's definitely like, Hey, sci-fi has a fucking place in <laughs> canon for a reason. And I think in a lot of ways, it's just really fascinating to look at and examine in a lot of ways. Funny that you would say that, because I picked Cowboy Bebop. Originally, I didn't pick Cowboy Bebop because I thought it would be something everyone has seen. Uh, Everyone would know it. But then I realized it's been 20 years from Bebop's kind of come out and being super popular. So I'm sure that there's plenty of people who haven't seen it. Or it's one of those things that you've heard of and you've never actually watched. We're all old. Yes, I can't believe that Cowboy Bebop is... 20 years old now is it like 22 years old That's isn't it crazy. old enough to drink it's 1998 so yes oh my god wow. i remember <laughs> i remember using its intro music in like high school that's how old it is that was like a million oh years ago god. and upon trying to view more of it to kind of like refresh my memory about cowboy bebop i discovered all of these things that probably went over my head when i first saw it because i pr- at the time was 
yes, mainly looking at it and being like, oh man, Spike is cool, look at that. And not so much just like, oh, existentialism, yes, that's so deep and profound. <laughs> but I really liked uh, Cowboy Bebop, and it didn't kind of punch into you uh, with the fact that this is the way the world is, this is why it's the way it is, but looking at it now, you can kind of piece together why things are the way that they are and why like no one questions the fact that bounty hunters are super popular and that they're needed but when you look at the little details of why they might be needed you have the interstellar police force that probably had a big uh base of operations on earth and then earth got totally decimated and destroyed in the gate incident which was when the gate kind of uh split open destroyed the moon and then for the next 70 years, uh, everything on Earth just got rained on by moon rocks and blasted into the Stone Age. And that is why a lot of uh, the the universe, or the solar system rather, is in this kind of desper- desperation of where there's not enough food, there's not enough manufacturing. Everyone's trying to get up to where they were 70 years ago because think about it now, if uh, suddenly all transportation systems were taken out for i don't know two months suddenly there would be plenty of people starving just because you couldn't get enough food from point a to point b and i like the way that that is displayed in the fact of uh you have industries that are on one planet that are so condensed and yeah it's great that they can make manufacturing they can uh they're good at genetics and everything but when it comes to food everyone's like living off of uh like a soy patty or I forget what they call it. They, uh, fish and bell peppers. Oh, right, right. (laughs) Yes. Yes. We all know Spike is the white Duke. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, so cowboy, I, I, I recently rewatched part of cowboy bebop in preparation for this episode. And it is so fucking good. Still. It is still amazing. And even in the first couple episodes, you get such a clear vision of what they want for the setting. You know, it's, you get this mix and you were absolutely right. They don't hold your hand when it comes to what's going on. Why is this happening immediately? They just toss you in the middle of it and you get this, you know, when they go to Guadalajara and they see, you know, regular trucks along with spaceships and, you know, (laughs) And and later on in the series, you obviously get like the bounty hunter show where it's a reality TV. It's like, oh, yeah, why are they so popular? Why is the police force so ineffective? Why is crime so prevalent everywhere? And it, that's actually a really great question that you ask is, you know, why would the bounty hunters be so popular? It's because who else are the people going to look up to when the bounty hunters are the ones who are actually providing law and safety to people? Right. And it's 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 just such a great series to like i could talk about it at length as well because it's so good uh but yeah th- there's there's a lot of great little moments even in the first episode alone that you get that are that you you that pique your interest like hey why is why is that like that and what's what's up with that it's little things that you can hint at and can be drawn into a bigger thing like why is spike ship actually a a race uh plane why is uh the bebop itself a fishing trawler would be the i don't know what is a space fishing trawler and uh i think uh 
Faye's uh, thing is some sort of repurposed uh, cargo thing, the red tail. Mm-hmm. The, the live-in yeah, nature of tech is really important, I think. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that I really liked about uh, cybernetics, and it kind of says the dynamic of the world that was at play, Jet is a policeman. He gets his arm blown off, and he gets kind of like a shitty prosthetic given to him. It's it's like okay, but it's not top of the line. Whereas Spike was a mobster, got his eye shot out or stabbed or an accident, and they give him something that no one can really tell was a prosthetic. Yeah. Again, it shows that the resources for the for for the actual law and governing system is spread so thin. And then it shows that Spike is either in a place of prominence among gangsters, which he obviously was, and just how successful those gangsters are. You're, You're right in that dichotomy between spike and jet that yeah you you kind of get a sense of the world from that instance pretty pretty readily i also like the the western music and the different music choices that the show makes i think that it speaks to the fact that it uses the kind of cowboy twang you know speaks to the nature of the show like right off the bat that this is this weird pursuit of your own self-interest out for yourself kind of universe and some of the first conversations that they have in the very first scenes is about like economic concerns, like not having the money to make the right kind of food, for example. And that's stuff that you can do from a world of perspective that gets across a large co- a concept really quickly. Um, so I think one of the reasons why we can connect with this show and any of the other ones that we think are classics, because we get enmeshed in the world really fast. Absolutely. And, and with Cowboy Bebop, that's pretty easy to do that. Uh, and, and also tank, and real folk blues, which are the opening and the intro and outro songs, still some of the best. Like I, I listen again, rewatching the episodes. I'm like, I'm still getting hyped. I'm like, oh, t- <laughs> Tank is so fucking good. I'm so ready. Yeah, absolutely. So well, I just love how it's mix and match too. You know, like it's like oh. unexpected, and that that's what kind of gets you into the world because you know that this world's going to be unpredictable. You know, from that's lawless. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So my first choice uh, is is going to transition from from Cowboy Bebop specifically because if you want to talk about uh, Chris mentioned something that was kind of telling where it's like hey this is this is the world after a disaster this is the world that continues on afterwards I wanted to talk about a sh- a show that is it's not that great actually I, I'll I'll admit to that but. <laughs> What, but it is very interesting, and in at least in terms of world building. And I want to highlight a show called Fire Force, which is I, I chose for two reasons. One, it has a high concept that is unique and interesting, and the world building is actually fantastic. And secondly, it sounds like something that we would make up on the show. Uh, I, I wanted to bring up Fire Force, which is a world uh, where... For some reason, and and I feel like that's actually kind of indicative (laughs) of the show, for some reason that we will not go into right now, uh, there there are basically demons that show up because human combustion is now a major thing and the whole world is essentially engulfed in fire. And that's pretty cool, you say? Like, what's what's the deal with that? And also, (laughs) the main cast are the people who fight these 
spontaneously combusting demons. And they are, of course, the firefighters. Because all of these demons are, you know, fire demons. And all of the firefighters are, well, they fight fires. But also, most of them have pyrokinetic abilities. Because that's how you have to fight fire. Right, you have to fight fire with fire. fire. (laughs) Everyone's everyone's heard that, that, of course. Uh, But... Okay, so it sounds dumb. And when Chris initially showed me the seas- the trailer to this, I'm like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and I believed that. And in some ways, I still believe that. <laughs> but as I continued to watch the show, I'm like, wow, this is actually, the-, the-, the storytelling and the world building is actually really interesting. They have, and, and I wanted to kind of highlight some of the things that I really love about the world because, damn, It's pretty cool. One of the things that I really wanted to highlight is it's unique uses for the same basic concept, right? Like every character in fire force has the ability to manipulate fire or heat in some way, but because the show writer is clever, the way that they manipulate it is always different and unique to each character Sometimes to the point where it literally makes no sense. <laughs> like, like, why does that character have a tuba and why does he freeze things? Like, okay. Th- you just don't understand the dumb. science. Right, right. Like, exactly. But, but then, but then you get into time manipulation and you get into super speed and it's like, this is, and the way they explain it is all based on fire and pyrokinesis, which I'm like, you know what? That's a stretch and a half, but I like the way that you're justifying it at least. So again, one of my favorite things is you have a singular concept and you just stretch it into the breaking point and then it breaks. And then you're like, fuck it. I'm going to explain it with soft magic shit. I don't give a fuck. (laughs) And then you keep going. You keep going with that really basic concept. And that's one of my favorite things. I love taking a simple concept and just stretching it out until I can make it as interesting as possible, basically. And um, in in literary circles, like that's called high concept, right? So it's I feel like a lot of what we try to do on the show is is start with a high high concept idea and then see where it goes. That's what I like about Fire Force too. Is like exactly what you're saying. You get this dumb smile when you realize, okay, that logically follows, even though it's insane. You know, and that's what I like about that show. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You know? Yeah. And, uh, and the other thing that I don't want to discredit it, it, it does a great job making the world feel real. Like, yes, there's demons and fire magic, but let's, let's also be like, Hey, this is a post Tokyo, Tokyo. And you kind of get that sense. The idea that you, it's lived in and it's like, there's rubble and it's not like a, a bright and shiny future. This is a world that's barely scraping by with what it has. I, I love that. Like, and you get that aesthetically and you also get that in kind of the way that religion has evolved, right? Where there is a new religion, where there is a new sense of gods and demons. And you're like, oh yeah, that's exi- that exists now. We didn't know that it exists until recently, but you see the societal change as well. And I, and I wanted to highlight that part as well, because it's, they do a great job in, in showcasing that as well. Or the one one thing that I thought was fall, uh, kind of an extension of 
the logic, the internal logic of the show is the whole way that I guess this pyrokinesis evolves, like from one generation to the other. And then when they show each character, they're like, this person is second generation infernal. This person's, you know, third generation. And then it gives you like a continuity to the whole universe. Like, okay, I immediately know this character's status on the basis of the crazy concept that was established that, you know, first generation beings are these literally spontaneously combusted demons. Whereas like later generations are humans who have, who have somehow adopted their powers. So like, even though it doesn't make sense outside of the universe, that internal logic is how it makes sense, you know, to us. Yes. And I think, I think that's the thing. I think a lot of people like when they, when they talk about believability and when they talk about, you know, what feels real, it doesn't matter if, in our world, it makes no logical sense. As long as you justify it in the universe that you're living in, that that's all you need. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't need to, like, in our world, you don't get super speed and time manipulation because you can manipulate fire and heat really good. That's not how that works. But it does in the Fire Force universe because they have a science man there to explain it and be like, <laughs> science oh, man. yes, there, there's a scientist who's there and he's, he's watching the final battle of the season. And he's like, Oh man, he's increasing his blood flow happened. using fire. Something like that. I, I'm, I'm not going to give it away, but it's uh-huh. basically, yeah, it's close to that. I thought it was very important to point out the character who fights fires with guns. Oh, I knew you were going to bring him up. It's very important. you were going to bring him up. It's so dumb. It's like, why does shooting bullets at a fire help? Like, no. Why why does that make any sense? Whatever. I mean, the minute... Control the blast. The the minute I saw, like, the train initial train scene, I didn't realize it was about fire firefighters at all. So I saw the initial train scene, and someone's coming out, and they're on fire. There's this, like, spontaneous combustion. And then I realized they're firefighters. I'm like, okay, everything makes sense now. (laughs) It it doesn't, but it also makes sense. (laughs) Yes. Oh, also, I do want to point out, I love the captain so much because he's the only one fighting these giant demons and he has no powers whatsoever. And he's still a captain. So, you know, <laughs> he's a badass. Three, exactly. And you know, like season three or four, he's going to, he's going to show exactly why he's the captain by being a super badass. <laughs> and I can't wait for that episode. I can't wait Save for that. Save everyone. Like, yeah. Exactly. He's going to have that moment. He's probably going to die, but man, is it going to be great. And that's why I you mean, are our captain. I, I almost rather have like high concept that makes you smile than something super heady that's hard to get your head wrap your head around because it's like it clicks so quickly and you can you can keep the person watching or reading for a while as long as you explore the concept. Uh, right, and as long as you can continue to sp- expand on that single mm-hmm. uh, high concept, exactly, exactly right. Uh, let's see. I can spin off that. Uh, Chris, why don't you, well, I, I feel like Chris can also do that with high okay. concept as, hey, it's Zootopia. Oh, it's right. <laughs> it is oh, not pornography. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, before we get into that, Daniel, how far did you get into Beastars? Um, I watched one episode and I was and like, oh, <laughs> I don't, and then I, then I read a little bit of it and I'm like, hmm. This sounds corny to me, but okay. (laughs) 
no, no, no. It's it's about <laughs> plot and character development and the high concept of man. It is really hot. Um, <laughs> temperature wise, it's the summer. Um, Daniel, I'll, I'll say this. I'll say this. When Chris initially, so I caught Chris watching B Stars multiple times. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> I sent you a screenshot and it was game. on YouTube on the corner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He sent he sent me a screenshot of, of a game he was playing while he was also watching Beastars in the background. Oh and the title of the YouTube was like like White Snow Rabbit and Wolf <laughs> Spend Night in a Love Hotel. <laughs> wait i can explain it's not what it yeah. looks like yeah exactly and like i'm like i immediate judgment harsh <laughs> critical judgment towards chris i'm like what the fuck are you, like why are you watching furry porn and sending me screenshots of it it's, it's not then, no 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 it's not porn you just need to watch a few episodes it's okay it's a great i mean okay, i heard that I heard that and I was also very skeptical. And then I actually watched it and I got to that scene. I'm like, wow, that's a really touching scene. No, like, but it looks so terrible out of context. It's, like, Jesus. It's as I if they sent you the JoJo scene in the bathroom. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Like, no, no, no. I'm watching a cool fighting anime. I swear. And it's like, why is that naked man bathing that small child? And why is it say menacing around him? <laughs> I'm dying. I have to say, like, I was very skeptical because I've I once found myself in the middle of a furry convention by accident. Now you might ask, how does that happen to someone? <laughs> well, this, no. hold on. How did this wolf's dick get in my hand? <laughs> what happened here? Mainly, it was a birthday party, and the person who was renting the like the hotel room happened, happened to be cheap because we had the penthouse suite because it was during a furry convention. So I went into this with some horror. Okay, I uh, worked at a hotel that hosted a furry convention. Oh wow! Yeah, it's something else. Imagine, I mean, the, the experience of being on the elevator and you're surrounded by furries like there's nothing like that, honestly. So, so here's the thing, I actually, I've really come around on furries, not because like I, I have that inkling towards it myself, but because it's like, I, I just like, yeah, they're, it's fine. They, that's just how they want to live their lives. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Go you, do you, man. Yeah, like, don't you want to people's yum. I mean, have, you can have conventions about whatever you want. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah. As long as you're not, as long as it's not bestiality, which yeah, is or Nambla, you know, like, as long as it's not that. Exactly. <laughs> And you know what? It can be a creepy sex thing if you want it to be. I'm not here to judge. I do creepy sex things too. They're just not related to furries. Oh my god. You're making the transition harder somehow. <laughs> While also trying to be it's just like, no, it's perfectly fine. And now that we've said that, Beast Beast Star is an anime about. I'm not sure what I'm going to keep or how I'm going to chop and screw this, but man, this is going to be an interesting one for future me. Let me just put it that way. But yeah, if you wanted to boil it down, you could be like, it's Zootopia with more adult themes, I guess would be the way that I would put it. But uh, it explains a lot more of like, how does Predator and Prey actually get along in a society? How would it function? Would there be a black market of where people actually would eat food? Is there an entire kind of uh, underworld? Is there still the dynamic of uh, predators are at the top? All of that. 
Yeah, that's so. Yes, it's a weird furry style anime, and yes, there's some suggestive scenes in it. But man, if that's all you're focusing on, you're really missing out on a really great, well put together story, and a really well put together world as well. Like, like Chris said, there are parts of it where figuring out how this world would actually work and the requirement that, Hey, you know, all the carnivores still eat meat, but they're not actually meat. It's all eggs only because it's illegal to eat other animals and stuff like that, I think is really brilliant and really smart and interesting. And when you go to the black market and you see this old man selling bites of himself for, you know, like to, to, to people who are carnivores, obviously like how fucking cool is that? Like how clever an idea is, Hey, I'm a, I'm a herbivore. I will sell you my fingers if you want to take a bite out of me, because that's how desperate I am. And also it's the black market. Fuck it. You're not allowed to eat meat. You want meat? It's in your instinct. Go ahead. Take a bite. Give me money first though. It's interesting that you say that because again, again, I only watched the one episode. Um, but like my takeaway when I watched that one episode was I, I didn't notice as much the whole like herbivore versus carnivore thing, but I did see it as like this weird allegory for puberty, <laughs> and I wasn't sure is that is that in any way carried out in other episodes or is that just an impression from the first one? So puberty is a good aspect that you could see from it. I saw it as instinct versus desire, mm-hmm. and also uh, dealing with society. So I mean. People are angry. People want to fuck. You can't just fucking hit people all day long. You have to. <laughs> we live in a society. Chris, that is literally puberty. Like what you just said <laughs> is literally like I want. I have these instincts. I'm stuck in a society. I want to fight shit. Like what is that? What is that? If not like a boy puberty, like for sure. I'm like, sorry. My family kept me out of fight. team sports because I was too aggressive. <laughs> I mean, you know, one way you can always cloak a, a difficult or complex subject is by anthropomorphizing it, which is literally what the show does. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the allegory of like instinct, like animal instinct compared to like, you know, the instinct of a man is is, is helpful. It does kind of like soften the blow. If this were if you did this in a world that was strictly, you know, like humans there, it, it, I feel like it would somehow be creepier. Yeah, uh, I think or, so. You know, as opposed to like, oh yeah, I had this desire to, you know, that's just for you know, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm not gonna yeah anyway anyway, I, I think it's a, and I do love the idea that you know the relationship between animals and the idea of you know this is in my nature because I'm this way or like the way that animals interact with one another is really pretty cool you know like the the herbivore trying to show that he's not weak. And, you know, and, and trying to be essentially an alpha, despite his biological inclination is really interesting. I, I think that that's and again, it's I, I, like you said, it's it's commentary on class and it's commentary on society. It's it's inter- it's it's a really great way to kind of explore that without having to touch the isms <laughs> isms here. You know, is it is it a, is this show an example of slice of life? absolutely yeah absolutely yeah i mean it's basically about like high schoolers who are trying to figure out who they are and also like date each other and shit like that so yeah it's definitely slice of life until the yakuza show up and then it just kind of goes off (laughs) what oh oh the lion lion yakuza Yakuza. oh god 
Yeah. I'm not going to spoil anything else, but man, Lion Yakuza is a real thing that happens. Just letting you know. One of the things that I also liked about it was just the baser insect biology playing into almost like a drug-like role of how they, like that one tiger would be like, I'm going to take a hit of uh, like herbivore blood right before something. Yeah, so like I can get to the mood. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I feel like that like drugs and uh vices in worlds that's also how you can make it more 3d in a sense if you make it unique to this world or unique to the biology of something that's in that world it gives it more depth absolutely the 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 idea that you're introducing something that well of course it makes sense that a lion wants to eat a rabbit you know or it wants to eat something that is considered prey of course, it's going to smell that, you know, blood and it's going to get excited because that's in its instinct and nature. Like, yeah, it, it, absolutely. When you guys mention high concept and having like internal logic, I think that speaks to the other anime that I was interested in talking about, which is Full Metal Alchemist. Um, and I realize there's lots of a uh, couple of different versions of it. So I'm talking about the one that was first aired. So I think it's, it's, it was partially based on the manga and then it went off on its own path. Um, although what I'm going to talk about really doesn't matter. It can apply to any of them. So for those who are unfamiliar with it, uh, again, it's a big mainstream one. So my tastes are not very uh, uh, unique here, but it's about a couple of brothers who try to resurrect their mother through a science of alchemy. And um, it obviously goes horribly wrong. Um, they lose parts of their bodies and they kind of have to go on this journey to try and uh, fix themselves uh, in search of the philosopher's stone. But what I think is interesting about this is is what speaks to the whole uh, task or project of world building. World building is that we have, I think, especially in genre, a harder task than literary fiction when it comes to establishing the world, because obviously we don't have a world to start with. So instead, we have to build one from scratch and create um, enough familiarity that someone can get into it and then follow us through it. So the question of like, how do you do that? Well, in Full Metal Alchemist, I think that's accomplished through a hard magic system. Um, and, and a hard magic system um, is one where the rules of magic are more clearly defined. So there's like an, a, an internal logic to them. And by having this hard magic system in Full Metal Alchemist, we're able to get some familiarity um, with how the world works. So in the show alchemy is is you know proclaimed to be the science of equivalent exchange where you know you have to put in certain kinds of inputs to get the right outputs that you want but it always requires it always is give and take you have to give something to get something and they're equivalent ins and outs but what that does regardless of what the rules are uh, it establishes sort of predictability and limits to what the characters can do so it lets us start to be able to predict um or sorry it lets us start to be able to uh, understand what the, the the stakes will be for characters as, as the story progresses. And it lets you um, have a reaction to when a rule is broken. So knowing, for example, that Edward doesn't need an alchemy circle to do his alchemy, you know, it is an important fact because it gives it some uniqueness to his character. Or in the very first episode, when we encounter that false priest guy who is making these so-called miracles, you know, the fact that he doesn't use a uh, circle you know that, that allows us to get in on the mystery because then we realize oh he has you know this magical artifact that lets him do it which i think is like another fake philosopher's stone 
the other thing I think it, what's interesting about Fullmetal Alchemist is right off the bat, it establishes um, some things just by the look of characters. So when we see Alphonse, like in the suit of armor, even though we don't really know what happened to him just yet, even though it explains it relatively quickly, we get a sense that this is going to be a world where um, there's this pseudo-medieval kind of um, pre-science uh, setting you know, it's got this veneer of steampunkish kind of uh, uh, characters and feeling, and that's all communicated just from having this this full suit of armor that's moving around, or you know, the the kind of dress that the alchemists wear. So I think part of what makes Fullmetal Alchemist really iconic is having a predictable system that gives us that internal consistency and some some imagery that suggests the setting. You know, as, as quickly as you see the characters. I do like the fact that there, once again, there's stuff that kind of gets brought up that would just naturally happen, but no one outright says it. People who could use alchemy would be a, a like a piece of prominence, and it seems like anyone who could understand alchemy or who gets taught alchemy either becomes the military or becomes some sort of affluent scientist that does work for the government. It's... Uh, quickly put in there and then you also have the government with secret projects that you get to see later on in the seasons yeah there's, there's established like this kind of idea that that alchemy is supposed to represent reason like in a rational world that gets used differently by the government versus people regular people but at the same time it seems like very capricious because it's governed by this weird god that doesn't like when you mess with it or break his rules yeah, what's with you in breaking rules, Daniel? You just love <laughs> to be breaking rules, man. Like, that's got to be in some kind of weird thing with you. Uh, whatever. I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> that's what no, this but, film's all about, <laughs> I think. I, I, I do love uh, the sense of progress that alchemy affords and the sense of... And obviously, like, like we haven't mentioned the actual tag, which is equivalent exchange mm -hmm. like we the the idea that the hard magic system like you you just need to say that every alchemist needs some form of equivalent exchange and it instantly clicks everything else into place where it's like oh i get it now like exactly. they explain the rules to you they set up the framework and then they daniel all over it by being like this is how we break the rules <laughs> this is how we're going to break every rule that we've uh, that we've set up thus far and but but then they also do really interesting things with like the religion within the world as well and and let's backtrack a little bit as well because i think that showing how alchemy affects technology is really interesting as well i do like the vaguely steampunk setting as well i think that's mm -hmm. one of the more interesting aspects of it and Oh boy, when they get into the hydra, the the chimera and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, I love. Yeah, I do love I do love the homunculus and I do love the chimera and they're showing like of course that's what would happen. These people would exist. These people would want to push the boundaries and break rules in the worst way possible because they don't care. They're just doing it for the science or alchemy in this case. In stark contrast to what is, you know, a very hard magic system in Full Metal Alchemist, my final anime that we're examining is Avatar The Last Airbender because I fucking love that show. It just came back out on Netflix. I binged it all in like a week. And, oh, it's it's it has a really great 
soft magic system that I think is, it, it's, it's fantastic. I think that part of the appeal of the setting in particular is that soft magic system. So I, 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 I've only seen, I only saw three episodes because I've heard of how popular like Avatar is and for this I want to prep for it. But what's strange is I got the sense that while it's, it's soft, it's, it's, it's definitely softer than say like Full Metal Alchemist or, you know, um, I don't know, like any other hard magic system that I've seen. I still feel like it's in the realm of hard magic in the sense that there's still rules. Like um, the, the magic has a rhyme and reason of some sort, as opposed to say like Gandalf who, whatever magic he does just serves the plot. Um, but it definitely creates on the edge of, of hard magic. Yeah. See, I would, I would argue that it's definitely a soft magic system because like the only rules when it comes to magic are, Hey, there are four elements and you need the element in order to manipulate it. Right. Like there, that's, that's pretty much it. And then later on, as the seasons go on there, it, it actually becomes even softer when oh, it comes to what it can manipulate, you know, it comes down. Does it get more over time? Lava bending, metal bending. Yeah, it, it becomes it becomes even softer. It's like vaguely related to you know like lightning bending. Or if you really want to go like deep into it, there is uh, energy bending eventually, mm-hmm. um, which which is an avatar only thing. But like the idea that this magic system exists it, it, again, it's part of the appeal of the system. It's why I think Avatar: the Last Airbender is so good, and why the world building it in particular is so excellent. And actually. I'm going to go off on a uh, on a whole fucking spiel that I have here about why Avatar The Last Airbender is so good for its world building in particular. I'm not even going to get into everything that I think is really, really good because that would take way too long. I'm just going to hit on a couple of things. And the first one I did actually want to bring up is that soft magic system. You can look at that magic system and you can say, yeah, that makes sense. I get the logic behind it and I get exactly how and why it works. Uh, there is fire. Okay, cool. Fire bending works. You have fire. You can ignite stuff. Air bending, water bending, earth bending. You have the elements. You can manipulate those elements. And that's the system. It's easy to, it's easy to grasp. Bam. I'm in there. I'm good to go. But then what I really love about that is that how that soft magic then infects the rest of the world with that same logic, right? You see cultural uniqueness that is based around that magic system. Okay, you for example, you have the Earth Kingdom, which is vast, and the you, the architecture is all stone because, of course, it would be. And then the way that they use earth bending incorporated into their culture and society all makes sense. You have massive moving trolleys because you have people they're essentially subways because earthbenders are behind these massive stone carts pushing them because of course you can. And the, that's the technology. That's the kind of the aesthetic choice when it comes to magic. So you take that aspect, right? Where there's the everyday usage of magic. You take that even further with with the, the way the culture develops and you have this idea of, the firebenders have fire and therefore they're more industrious. You see that in the way that they use technology. Obviously they can kind of bend metal or, or at least cut metal because they have fire to help mold it. They're more industrious. You see that in their culture. And as a result in this particular instance of history, anyway, you see that they're more imperialistic as a result. 
And what I love about that is you see it in the smaller episodes where you examine what is that culture like under an imperialist state. You you get to experience what it's like to be treated as a as part of a colony. You know, people the people from the Fire Nation tend to look down on Aang and his people because, oh, you're you're from the colony. Oh, it's okay. You don't know any better. And it's just little moments like that that you kind of get from the world building within it that is so great. And there are all sorts of great delineations of it as well, like I was saying with the colonies and whatnot, but also you get the differences between waterbenders and how you can see that they're kind of from the same tribe, but how different they are. Oh man, that that's that's one that's just another aspect, and I'm still going. I'm not done yet. I apologize for people who say I talk too much. I know I don't care in this case. We're keep going. Last thing I want to talk, talk about a little bit is the sense of history and progression within Avatar's world as well, because that's a huge part of it. When you start the story, you already have like within the first five seconds. This is the premise. It's been a hundred years since I was the Avatar already. You have a hundred years of history that have gone by. So you have a sense of time and space. And then because you get to explore the different past avatar lives that Aang has experienced, you now get an even greater depth of history as well by exploring those past lives. And man, it does it in such a clever way that they get to explain and explore how and why things change in the world. And then going forward, past Aang and past, you know, his time as the Avatar, when you get into Legend of Korra, you get to jump forward in time and see that bending has changed, that there is a social and technological progress that is greater and faster than what we would experience because we don't have the ability to manipulate elements. And so in, you know, season one or season two of Avatar, when you're seeing people bend lightning, and you're like, oh, that means they're elite. That means that, you know, they're special. And then in season one of Korra, which is 70 or 80 years after the first Avatar series, people are just doing it in factories. They're bending lightning in factories because, yeah, that's just how that works now. Like the the technology and, and ability to manipulate elements has updated and changed and progressed. And it's just... It, they do it in clever little ways like that, that I love about the world building in Avatar. Also, fuck you. Avatar Last Airbender is anime. Fuck you, fight me, let's go. Oh, I was about to bring that up if some people were going to be upset. No, people no. argue that it's not anime? Why do they yeah. argue that? Because, it, because it's um, it's made by, a, it's technically Western developed. It was a Nickelodeon oh. show. It was done by a Korean animated, uh, a Korean animated animation studio. And yeah, a lot of people do fight in like, oh, it's not. That seems it's kind of absurd. That. That's like saying that like a RPG is an RPG that lacks one particular aspect of the typical RPGs. Yeah. yeah Listen, Daniel, me and you should not fight about what is and what is not part of something. Because we <laughs> shit all over Star Trek. And Star Trek. <laughs> I know. Although I know, but, but we're right in this scenario. And they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> they're the uh, ones who were wrong. Um, on the subject of Avatar, though, I wanted to say I, what I really appreciated, is, since I only saw those three episodes, and I, tr I tried to analyze these these shows that we were talking about without thinking about their preface, like because the, most of them have like a little opener that explains the situation. 
But this, despite I so ignored the opener, right? When I watched the episodes. And I think even even ignoring the opener, Avatar does a great job giving me that opener in the context of the show through the characters in the sense that each of the principal characters represents something about the world like fundamentally so like when you see um ang you know and, and he's he's the air he's the airbender and he's got this like plurality of powers his his um willingness to be friends with everyone and his like naive kind of like naive open-mindedness at least in the episodes i saw um speaks to that plurality like of his power so there's something there's something that it does in terms of bridging the character and the and the way the nation operates like the fire guy seems like really dogmatic and hard-headed and that seems to be the way their culture is and so like they they find a way to show you those things just by presenting you with a single character absolutely and that and that's kind of what i was getting at when i was exploring the kind of cultural uniqueness with it with it. and that's the brilliant thing is that they explore cultural uniqueness through the element system without making it super obvious mm-hmm. right like you kind of get like, yeah, he's an aggressive person and Aang is significantly more like, hey, let's go with the flow. Everything's cool because of the way that the air nomads uh, kind of taught him. And I think that's just a brilliant way to do it. And then what I also love is that when you have different aspects of the same nation, you know, you have earthbenders here and you have earthbenders here. And man, if you look at them you know, like next to each other, you don't understand how they're the same nation. And I love that because that's true of real world stuff as well. Like you can have two Americans and yeah, just because we're Americans, our cultures are entirely different. Our, the way that we look at the world is entirely different. If we go like we're Bostonians for the most part, Boston compared to Texas, compared to California, compared to Alabama, those are four different countries that you're living in. Like it may seem, it may see like they all say American TM CR, but it's like, no, they're so different. And I, and that's actually the sense of what I get from avatar as well is that yes, we're both airbenders or yes, we're both waterbenders, but we're very different people. And that's what I love about it. That's, that's one of the things that I, I could gush on and on about. What's Florida's airbending power. Is it like, Cannibalism? Oh, <laughs> Did you say cannibalism? <laughs> yes, but not sex cannibalism because that would be Germany. No, um, Florida would be waterbenders because of the swamp. <laughs> That's true. They, yeah, they'd be they they they'd ride on alligators. <laughs> they would use them as like propellers and stuff like that. That's that's pretty much what would happen. Oh, they'd be the swamp people uh, benders. Yeah, swamp exactly. benders. Yes, Everglades. I like the fact that it also to establish more of how it is a natural part of the world that there were natural benders that were animals like Appa was an airbender. Yeah. Uh, they had the moles that were the natural earthbenders. Was there anything else that was a firebender besides the dragons? No, the dragons were the original firebenders. Mm. Yeah. I do. I do love that, that it's, there is again, a justification for people understanding the world or people understanding how the magic system works. It's like, Oh, these were the original, you know, element benders and people learned from them. Of Yeah. That makes sense. Of course it makes sense. And to go back to kind of like a uh, Chinese martial arts and how it carried things that they would see in nature with like mantis, snake, eagle, and all of that. That's also how the fire bending, water bending and earth bending styles also had their own kind of martial arts that was mixed into their bending. 
Yes, that was more of a conceit of the designers. But yeah, I do love that each martial art is distinct to each element as well. And it's and it's clear, you know, in in the fight scenes in particular, but also just in general. I think that's a really good point. But going back to the ones that had copied the animals in the original vendors, that is actually where they learned the most. Like when... Uh... Yeah he saw the first firebenders and also witnessed the dragon. That's where his firebending was then suddenly like, Oh, that's how they do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's important in any world building. I think what avatar does well is you don't want any element of the design you're creating um, to, to not serve a purpose, whether that's narratively or whether it speaks to like the nature of the setting. And I think like every little detail that avatar adds contributes to the concept of a world like either the high concept or what story it's trying to tell so you wouldn't want to just like throw some random thing in there just because it's a fun side quest like it has to somehow be endemic to the setting yes Hmm. well gentlemen i think that we've talked about anime for just about long enough all right so that will wrap it up for this week look anime can be pretty controversial but if you liked what we did today and you want to hear us talk more about world building and anime, you can go ahead and send us an email to worldbuildwithus at gmail.com or you can talk to us quicker by going to Twitter and typing in at Let's World Build and just you know sending us a message there. That's fine too. Alternatively, if you want to send us your own anime-based world building prompt, same thing. Send us, send us that. That's cool. That's what this show is all about. But remember that until next week, we love you very much. Uh, we notice you for sure. And we're all in this together. We're going to get through it.